Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And there's the brown line. This Ben Jarofsky show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 in District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show as I speak. It's Friday, March 27th, and the Brown Line is going by. Yes, indeed, we're... Uh, Still broadcasting. I guess it's going to be a long while that we're going to be doing this, D, from my attic, uh, my house right next to the Brown Line. So we hear the train roaring by so, uh, in the middle of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Bonus time of the Ben Jarofsky Show. Uh, as I do every time, I ask my distinguished guest to introduce him or herself. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hi, this is Mary Wisniewski with the Chicago Tribune. I cover transportation for the Tribune, and I've also written a biography of Nelson Algren. And she's also a union leader in the Chicago Tribune's uh, Union of Editorial Workers. And the last time Mary was on the show, she was with her colleague and union uh, leader, Charlie Johnson, who were talking union issues at the uh, Tribune. Remember that, Mary? And at the right. and uh, at the end of that interview, uh, Mary and I said, "Hey, let's bring her back for Nelson Algren's birthday because Nancy, excuse me, Mary, in addition uh, to being a public transportation writer, a union activist, is also an author who wrote uh, a biography of Nelson Algren, the great Chicago writer. And uh, it is his what? What is tomorrow? Did you say his one hundred and third birthday? One hundred eleven. One hundred eleven. Because he was born in nineteen oh nine. So wow." Damn, 1909, yeah. the great Nelson Algren. Uh, so, yeah, when we planned this, it's not, it was such a great idea. Of course, neither Mary nor I uh, had any way of predicting that we'd be in the middle of this crisis and we'd be staying at home. And uh, Mary, so I said to you before we came on, I, I definitely still want to talk about Nelson Algren. And I know you prepared to have the conversation about Nelson Algren. And we've promoted it on the show already. And I got my... Uh, Mike Royko book boss here because I really do believe I that Royko <laughs> we're sharing our boss books. Uh, Royko was influenced tremendously by Nelson Algren. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, I've been reading Boss since I've been locked in my house. But before we take uh, the deep dive on Nelson Algren, why are we still running uh, regular service in the CTA uh, in public transportation if there are not that many passengers on the trains? Because some people really need to take the train. Um, first responders, people who have to get to work, people who are working in grocery stores and working in hospitals. And Mayor Lightfoot has said that, you know, we're going to continue to carry people where they need to go. So the CTA is still doing normal service. They're not doing it for Metra. Metra is cut in half. 
Uh, they're not doing it for the South Shore line. Pace has cut some of their service. But for now, the CTA continues to roll, even though, as you said, I, I pass buses where there's only one person in the back. Well, having heard that explanation, it makes sense. So I'm going to stop making fun of the CTA for rolling trains at, uh, around the clock, even though one, even though no one's in there. Because it does make sense. If, if you work in a hospital, it is very important that you be able to get to work. Uh, and even if you're the only person in the train, it's I guess it's a very expensive form of Uber or, you know, one person in a train. But it does make sense when you put it that way. Right. And the buses actually are seeing less of a service drop than the trains are, which shows that you know, the buses are the ones that are really getting people to their jobs in the neighborhoods and getting people to their dialysis treatments and that sort of thing, as opposed to getting them to their jobs in the loop. So it's uh, I know the buses are are. are still you know not seeing quite as big a drop so well i'm I give, yeah i give a a big shout out to all the cta employees driving those buses and trains because i know it must be pretty uh it's a scary time to go out there there's always the threat of uh getting infected and uh, i know right. uh i was a little uh wary about going on a cta train once the uh, coronavirus hit chicago and so, yeah, big shout out to all those CTA employees. I know you feel the same way. Definitely. And the ones that are cleaning the cars, I watched uh, someone do that a, few, a couple of weeks back, and it's impressive. Um, they, they are using hepicide and all sorts of um, chemicals to get stuff off the, of the trains. And, and the, the advice I've heard is that if you're going to get on a train, don't hang on to the bars. Don't hang on to the grab bars. Um, you want to, you know, just take a seat and don't touch anything. Because the, where the germs are going are going to be on those those bars up near people's faces. And uh, before we move on to Nelson Algren, let's just talk a little uh, Tribune unionizing. The, again, just to remind everybody, the last time Mary was on the show, she was wearing her union activist hat uh, with Charlie Johnson and talking about union organizing efforts at the Chicago Tribune of the editorial uh, okay. employees. <laughs> and... Um, I'm all behind you guys 100%. Now, things have radically changed uh, since the last time you were on the show. Uh, but uh, any updates uh, on that front, Mary? Right. Well, right now what we're doing is we're negotiating with management to make sure that people who are still going out there, because you know reporters are considered essential employees. Um, I have my essential worker letter. Um, to make sure the people who are going out there are safe and that it's, you know, maybe gloves, masks. Um, we're also asking workers to talk with their supervisors. Do I really need to take this assignment in person and just make sure that we're not getting sick when we go out there? All right. Good to hear. Good to hear. All right. Let's talk a little Nelson Augren. That's the reason we set this date up when um, way back when, when uh, you were on the show last. Nelson Augren, talk about his significance uh, to Chicago for some of our listeners, Mary, who may not know of him or his work. Sure. Nelson Algren, I would consider, along with Carl Sandberg, Mike Rico, um, Richard Wright, um, are the, the essential one of the essential Chicago writers. I think that he helped um, create for us how, what we feel about the city. There are so many of the things that he, it's like what I wrote in my book is that, it's, you know, when Vincent Van Gogh, you know, painted sunflowers, you see sunflowers differently because of Vincent Van Gogh's painting of them. When Charles Dickens wrote about London, you see London differently because of Dickens. And I think that's what happened with Algrenade. He's got such an influence on how we look at things, how we look at the L, how we look at the broken and forgotten people of the city, how we, you know, and, um, 
And he, the other thing that's significant about him is that he was the first person ever to write about um, write fiction about drug addiction, which was Man with the Golden Arm. He was the first person to do that. Um, he won the first National Book Award for that. And he's also very emblematic of Chicago because he's, he's a, a writer that is unjustly ignored, just like Chicago gets unjustly ignored. And he's a writer with a constant chip on his shoulder about that, just like Chicago has a chip on his shoulder about being the second city or is probably is going to be in the future the fourth city after Houston takes us over. Unjustly ignored. Why is he unjustly? Why is he ignored? Forget the unjust part about it. Why is he ignore, ignored? I, part of it is because he was writing about things that are difficult, and his timing was terrible. He was writing during the Depression about you know people on boxcars, people suffering terribly through the Depression, and a lot of people didn't want to hear about that. You know, They wanted to see Ginger Rogers movies and see Shirley Temple movies and ignore the Depression. And then in the, in, you know, he, he did his best book, Man with the Golden Arm, um, you know, in the late 1940s, and then in, in, he was getting ready to make a movie about it. It was going to be great, and he was uh, um, he was going to make this big, hard hitting movie about drug addiction. And then the McCarthy era happened, and all of the people he was working with on the movie got blacklisted. And Nelson himself, his 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 work started falling into you know in, into disregard because of where people were in the fifties. They didn't want to hear about stumble bums and prostitutes. They wanted to hear about Marjorie Morningstar, and so that was the problem with Algren. And that that continued through his life, where he was writing about things that were unpopular. He was writing about what the American dream and how it doesn't work out for people. And the reason I think he's it's unjust is because this is what American literature is about. It's about writing about America and how it doesn't, you know, how it doesn't working out for everybody. You know, you know, the, the Chicago slogan is, you know, we will. And Algren was asking, well, what if we can't? Yeah. And I think that's an essential part of American literature. You talk about Chicago, uh, Nelson Algren captured Chicago uh, in a way that is sort of like how we see Chicago. Go a little deeper into that. What do you mean by that? Well, I think that, you know, you know, a lot of the quotes that we identify with Chicago, uh, with Algren, comes from his book City on the Make, which is this great prose poem that he wrote about Chicago. And in, in that book, he talked about, um, when, I, when, if you don't, don't mind, I'm going to do a quote from that book about uh, the do-gooders, you know, versus the, the, the scoundrels of Chicago, which is so relevant to what's going on now. He says, yet the do-gooders still go doggedly forward, making the hustlers struggle for their gold week in and week out, year after year, once or twice a decade, tossing an unholy fright into the boys. And since it's a ninth inning town, the ball game never being over till the last man is out. It remains Jane Adams town as well as Big Bill's. The ball game isn't over yet, but it's a rigged ball game. All right. Uh, help us help decipher, decipher that passage for some of our younger listeners. Big Bill and Jane Adams. Who are they, and what are they emblematic of? Well, Jane Adams, being the, um, the reformer and who created the settlement house, and uh, you know was was bringing in immigrants and teaching them how to read and making sure that people you know had clean milk and clean water. And Big Bill is, is, is talking about the uh, corrupt mayor of the 1930s um, and 20s. And this is, you know, this is the kind of thing we always have. We always have these dichotomies in town between the people who are trying to be the reformers and the people who are trying to, 
you know, steal the stove and the smoke too, as Royko once said about uh, a lot of the aldermen and city council. <laughs> what did it? What were they? <laughs> they were stealing what? <laughs> the, <laughs> the stove and the smoke too. <laughs> okay, oh, don't forget the smoke. If I can steal the smoke, I'll steal it. Uh, now, do-gooder as a term in Chicago uh, is uh, is a word. Uh, it's a pejorative. They, it's a people make fun of do-gooders in the city of Chicago. Was Nelson Algren making fun of Jane Adams when he in that uh, uh, in that uh, portion that you just read? Um, he was, and he wasn't. That was that's one of the beauties of Nelson Algren. He's got this constant sense of irony, and that he was respecting what Jane Adams was doing, but knowing also. And there's another part in the book where he talks about that that the the Goo-Goos, well, he doesn't use that term, but, uh, you know, the, you know, the Goo-Goos only get two strikes and the bad guys always get four. And that's how it's a rigged ball game. That, and so he admires the do-gooders, but he knows that they're always up against it. Yeah. And, and that attitude that Chicago is rigged is in the, it's in the essence, I think, of boy, how people in Chicago view the world, uh, that it is rigged. You know, Chicagoans had this attitude that Chicago was rigged long before Donald Trump introduced the term rigged to the larger population. Right. Yeah. That this is, um, you know, that 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 Chicagoans have always had to try a little bit harder and hustle a little bit harder to get what they can out of the city. And that that's part of what makes a Chicagoan. And that's another thing that Algren brings into his story that, you know, he talks about, you know, people this, this town having a hustler's heart. And uh, he says it's a place built out of man's ceaseless failure to overcome himself. And uh, that that out of man's endless war against himself, we built our successes as well as our failures, making in the city of all cities most like man himself, loneliest creation of all this very old, poor earth. Man's ceaseless. He has an affection for the city, but also he also realizes all of the problems in it. All right, help us and out. I, I, help, help us out with that phrase, man's ceaseless failure to overcome himself. Right. It's it's that um, you know, we're always trying to be better and we're constantly failing. We're constantly failing because of who we are. Um, Algren was very influenced by the existentialists and he part of the conflicts of his characters in the book is that they that they can't seem to get over their own problems and they just can't simply live and this is the problem with Frankie Machine. You know, this is the problem um, with, with, you know, all of the, his different kind of sad, sad, hard luck characters, uh, Roman the Drunk, um, that they can't, they can't deal with just living. They have to constantly be, um, you know, taking something to hide the pain of their own existence. Now, I'm sure that uh, uh, Nelson Algren's bleak portrait of Chicago, uh, his cynical view of Chicago uh, as a city in which everything's rigged against good and that uh, the bad people are sort of have the break of have all the breaks did not go over well with official Chicago, with the powers that be in Chicago. Talk a little bit, Mary, about how uh, official Chicago responded and reacted to Nelson Algren while he was alive in the city. Well, sure. I think the best example of that is what happened in his own neighborhood, the Polonia neighborhood around Wicker Park. Um, he was, uh, Nelson Algren was uh, Swedish and Jewish. Um, his, his, uh, answer, his grandfather was Swedish and then converted to Judaism. Uh, but Nelson really liked the Polish neighborhood. He liked the life there. He liked, it's kind of like being in another country and never having to leave Chicago. 
And he wrote a lot of his stories based in that neighborhood with Polish characters. And the first one to kind of really make a hit was uh, Never Come Morning about the boxer Bruno. And, you know, he's a Bruno is a murderer and a thief and a and a uh, a, a, uh, a pimp, and his girlfriend is a prostitute. And all of these things did not go down well with the Chamber of Commerce types from the Polish area, um, the Polish Roman Catholic Union. They were very, very upset with this. And uh, they tried to have Algren's uh, books banned from the Chicago Public Library. Were they successful? Um, they, it, that, that's it. The Chicago Public Library has no record that they were ever successful. And I went into the records of the public library and found that um, the books were purchased as they came out. Um, so I don't think that, you know, there was actually a ban, but Algren did report that it was hard to find his books. Uh, a research librarian told me that what's possible is because they were about kind of, you know, uh, naughty subjects that they might've been put in a restricted section and they were difficult to get out. I see. So they also reported him to the FBI. <laughs> so. Who who reported him to the FBI? Um, um, the uh, uh, the um, Chamber of Commerce types in Polonia um, reported him uh, to the FBI and complained about him because when Never Come Morning came out, um, it was 1942 and we were during World War II and Poland had been invaded and people were very very sensitive about uh, Polish people being portrayed as you know stumble bums. Um, Mike Royko said about um, this problem, he says uh, you know, they wanted a, a story about a Polish guy who changed his name and moved to the suburbs and became a dentist. So they didn't want <laughs> Alden to actually talk about these problems. Yeah, uh, Mike Royko, for our younger listeners, uh, was perhaps the greatest uh, journalist that has ever come out of the city of Chicago. This is me speaking. I don't want to put words in the mayor's mouth. Uh, he's certainly the most influential writer of my lifetime, and he is the um, he was a columnist for the Chicago Daily News, the Chicago Sun Times, the Chicago Tribune. He's the author of Boss, which I, as I started uh, the interview by saying, I'm now reading for about the 150th time in my life, Mary. I'm reading <laughs> Boss again, and here I am stuck at home. I'm looking for a book to read. I saw Boss on the shelf. I started reading it. Uh, we'll get into the in influence that Algren had on Royko, but Royko, I. Um, Royko's attitude about Chicago, Chicago, which had such a profound influence on writers like myself, and maybe you as well, um, is very much out of the Algren school. It's like the, everything's fixed. Um, pe people pretend, it was Jay McMullen actually who I first heard say this, Mary, he was the husband of Jane Byrne and he himself was a journalist. And he used to mock mm -hmm. people, uh, reformers, and newspaper writers and newspaper editorialists in particular. And he would say, they think it's legit. They like to think this game is legit. And it's so in other words, when, when politicians say X, Y, Z, their, their motives are buried by their words and they have other intentions that they're not revealing uh, by what they say. And so like a guy like Jay McMullen is rolling his eyes knowing that there's a game being played, like a subterranean game that nobody's revealing that's being played. And Mike Royko had that attitude. And I got to think that Nelson Algren sort of helped feed that attitude to them. I, I think he definitely did. But, you know, the, I, it should be remembered that with Algren, he wasn't just talking about Chicago. He was talking about America in general. He was talking about, you know, that the game is rigged for people who are on the bottom for all across the country. And this is something he was able to see because he lived through the Great Depression. 
and he can see how thin that veneer of civilization can be. All right, let's talk. And about- how you. No, I was going to say, let's talk about, uh, let's update that to where we are today uh, with the pandemic. And we're waiting breathlessly for announcements from our leaders as to what we should do next. Uh, There's, in many ways, I'm looking to Algren for inspiration or insights uh, in what to make of all this. Uh, Are there any, uh, is there anything in Algren, Mary, that, uh, that resounds to you today? when you see where we're going through with the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Because what he, you know, he came up during a really good time in the United States. He was, he was born in 1909. He came up in Chicago through the teens and the twenties when everything was go, go. And there were skyscrapers going up and everything was glittering. Like he said, like the the best all around job since Babylon. And he went, he, he was in Albany park. He got to see the big Balaban cats theater go up. He got to see the, you know, the merchandise mart, uh, came up uh, when he was a kid, um, when he was uh, actually a young adult. And um, he went down to University of Illinois to be a journalist. And, uh, you know, he thought it was a great time to be a journalist. You know, he was told there would be lots of jobs. And he graduated in 1931, you know, just when the Depression was just, you know, making people, you know, crazy. And uh, people were um, eating out of, you know, garbage trucks. There were 700,000 people unemployed in Chicago. So he saw that this was kind of this big, this big sham and all these things that he was told were not happening. And um, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to read a little bit from my book about this part of his life. Um, he's, 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 he, he can't find a job. And so he's riding the freight trains. He's going down route 66 and hitchhiking and trying finding jobs as dishwashers and working as a carny and that sort of thing. And he remembers this terrible sense of loss. He says, one night in New Orleans, Nelson remembered sitting around a dim electric bulb like a campfire, sharing thin soup and livened with a single piece of ham. Everyone knew the man serving the soup would keep the ham for himself, but he slipped somehow, and the meat landed in an old visitor's bowl. Nelson remembered the sense of loss. What happened? That was the question, and all the thin faces around him, all these native sons. He heard it in everyone's talk, from the boxcars, from the jungles, from the women on back porches yearning for coffee pots. I always worked hard. My family worked hard. We're not bums. I fought in the war. I worked on the railroad. I went to college. I had a farm. I saved my money and the bank lost it. If we worked hard, weren't we supposed to rise? He heard stories colored in every shade of desperation, of babies dying and wives leaving and fathers committing suicides and crops that wouldn't grow, of non-union factory jobs with burned lungs or crushed fingers, of mothers and sisters gone mad. And this is the people that he was living with in a formative time in of his life. And so I argue that, you know, what happens when you're in your early 20s is something that sticks in your imagination. You know, Herman Melville was on a whaling ship when he was 21, and he never stopped writing about it. He never stopped talking about the particular horrors of that. And so I, I argue that Nelson, he was criticized for being stuck in the 30s, but I don't think he was stuck in the 30s. I think he just didn't forget the lessons that the 30s taught, that this is a winner-take-all society in capitalism, and that uh, he knew that the race was rigged and that everyone was going to make it. And he wanted to write about the people who didn't make it, not the working class. He wasn't writing about the working class. He was writing about the people who would completely fallen off the ladder. The race was rigged and not everybody was going to make it. Uh, what would you think he'd make out of... Uh, what just went down in Washington with the, uh, the, the relief bill, 
or stimulus bill, whatever they're calling it these days. Uh, what do you think his take on that would be? Well, that it's not going to be enough considering the kind of fallout we're going to have. And um, the fact that, you know, America, you know, he would have perhaps thought or said that America was already behind when we went into this crisis because we don't have universal health care. We don't have enough hospitals. We don't have enough protections for people. We have a lot of people working as gig workers who don't have a lot of protections. And so we're already behind and we're, you know, being given these little checks to help us, you know, be, be, you know, turn over. But there's there's a lot of grief and trouble coming ahead. Yeah. I, and I, uh, this is depressing time is, is happening. Sorry. Sorry to be so down. Yeah. No, let's not be too down. But let me just take this moment to say, and this is me speaking, not Mary, that like the lessons I've learned uh, from politics, from uh, people like Mike Royko and Nelson Augurn are sort of embedded in my attitude f that I've expressed many times about the debates. And Mary, just follow me on this one. It's just this, when uh, you talked about there's not health care for all. And during the, the Democratic debates, uh, when some of the moderate candidates were uh, attacking Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren because they were promoting a health care plan for all, they would do it as saying they were defending the people, the insurance plans that people had and really liked. And so they were standing up for the peoples uh, who love their insurance plan, like union act, union employees who have bargained for a great insurance plan. And I just thought, man, Nelson Augen or Mike Royko really was thinking, would have a field day with this. You know what I'm saying, Mary? Like, <laughs> you're afraid to take on the status quo that's fighting against universal health care, and you're saying you're doing that to defend the people who are losing money on the deal. Do you follow what I mean? You talk about a rigged economy or a rigged system. Your justification for not attacking it is to protect the people who are already getting screwed by it. That is where I think Nelson well, Augren is alive. I, I think that he would, I think that that's what makes him so relevant right now. Um, because the cracks, um, what, what he saw is the cracks in the system are being revealed in this crisis. Yeah. And people are never going to be, see, people are never going to forget this. I have a, a 12 year old daughter and this is, you know, this is her, you know, nine 11 moment. This is her Kennedy getting shot moment. However far back you go down in the, um, um, in, you know, in memory of this country that, that people are never going to forget how fragile things were at this time and that people had to rely on each other, um, to get through it. And that is, that's another, that's a positive part of Oliver's work is that he talks a lot about love and how love kind of appears as this golden thread that comes back down to rescue people mm -hmm. if they're willing to take it. Unfortunately, in his books, most people don't know enough to do that. Now, Mary, one of the other things uh, he wrote about, of course, is Chicago that existed in the 1930s and the 1940s and into the 50s, a city that's, uh, particularly the neighborhoods that he wrote about, is much different uh, than it is today. Uh, talk about that, the changes that have occurred in the, some of the neighborhoods where Algren lived or were uh, neighborhoods that Algren wrote about. Right. Well, the big, you know, huge change came into the neighborhood where he used to live in Wicker Park, um, where the Nelson Algren Fountain is right now is right at the corner in the, in the Polish Triangle at the corner of Division in Milwaukee and Ashland. This is the area where my family had come to live after they came over from Poland in the early part of the 20th century. And um, it used to be quite poor and it used to be quite crowded. And there used to, I, my father used to talk about there being a, a side uh, uh, bathrooms under the sidewalk when he was a kid that were kind of unsanitary. They used to call them um, 
um, Jan Pod Sidewalkium, which means John under the sidewalk. And uh, later, the, and so that, those are the kind of conditions people were living in. Now you go into that neighborhood and there's one bedroom apartments going for $2,500 a month. Now this is the kind of, um, now you're seeing lots, and, and what you're seeing in these neighborhoods too is a lot of people, um, not just in Wicker Park, but along all along the blue line, you know, up through um, uh, Logan Square and coming into my neighborhood in Avondale, or, that, that you see, um, you know, people who are longtime residents being forced out because of taxes. And so what's happening is that the, na- the, the very things that made the neighborhoods lively and interesting are, are being forced out. And this is a problem that um, people are really trying to grapple with right now. How do, we, how do we save what makes these neighborhoods interesting in the first place? I think that that cause has already been mostly lost in the Wicker Park area. Yeah, I think it's been mostly lost throughout the north side of Chicago. Uh, that is for certain as well. Uh, Mary, I don't, I don't know if I've ever asked you this question. How, and you've probably been asked it a million times, but I'll ask you anyway. How did you um, decide you were going to write a, a biography of Nelson Holgren? What motivated you to do that? Well, I was a fan, and I, I came to be a fan um, late because he, he's not part of the canon. You don't get you know assigned, or at least not when I was in school, assigned to read Nelson Algren, you get assigned to read Nathaniel Hawthorne and Melville and Shakespeare and stuff. Um, but when I was in college, I started to, you know, like, you know, wanted to walk on the wild side a little bit and read, you know, some Thomas Wolfe and some, uh, and some Keezy and some, you know, all the, the stuff that you like to read when you're in college. And someone recommended, oh, here's this, this book about drug addiction, uh, Man with the Golden Arm. And I started to read it and I said, wait a minute. You know, this is my family's neighborhood. These Frank and Sophie machine, or that—that's Frank and Sophie were the names of my grandparents. And so I was stunned by the fact that my neighborhood was chosen as this place. You know, where you know it was literature. I didn't think we could be literature. You know, I never, I, I never thought about Polish Americans being worth writing about, and that was a real revelation for me. And also, I thought the writing was so beautiful, and so I became this Nelson Algren nag and started reading everything that he wrote and pressing it on people and making sure that they read it and not being friends with them if they didn't like Nelson Algren, <laughs> using it as a, as a marker for who, who I wanted to hang around with. And when I became a reporter at the City News Bureau in Chicago when I was 21, I started running into people who knew him, and I started collecting stories. And so that's why I decided to write a biography, because I really wanted to tell his story from a Chicagoan's point of view who, and put an emphasis on Chicago history. Who were some of the people you ran into that knew Algren? Uh, well, one of them was uh, uh, David Peltz, who, along with Doris Peltz, his wife, were great friends of Algren through um, starting um, back in the 30s in the, in the WPA days. They were in the Works Progress Administration together. And uh, they, um, you know, he, he was there for a lot of Algren's adventures and misadventures, including having to take him to a mental institution at one point when he was in, in suffering break, a breakdown in the 1950s. Um, also, Stud Sturkle was a friend of Algren's. Um, another good friend of Algren's, uh, Andy Austin, who was a longtime courtroom artist and used to have uh, Algren over to parties. And he would, uh, he would announce outside the door that he was the cookie monster, the cookie monster is here. And then he comes in demanding his green martini. <laughs> he was, he was a wacky guy. Um, I think, you know, learning about him and reading about it, about his, his love life and his writing life. But the first year I started doing serious research, I started thinking, God, this guy's a weirdo and kind of a jerk. I don't know if I want to write about him. And, the, and then I figured, you know, I'm not his mother. 
I met his girlfriend. I don't have to judge him that way. Um, he's uh, he's a very interesting and a very quirky guy, and I think he got a raw deal in not being um, appreciated as much as he should have been during his lifetime. I agree with you 100%. Nelson Algren got a raw deal. You could take kind of out of that sentence. He got a raw deal. He's not appreciated his hometown. Now, we, we have that... I don't know if we still do it in the city of Chicago. Mayor Rahm had it. Mayor Daly had it. Uh, one book, one Chicago. Uh, did, did Nelson Algren get ever selected, as far as you know? Any Nelson Algren books ever get selected for that? I think that, I think that Man with a Golden Arm might have been picked once, but I don't know. You know, I'm trying to reach back into my memory. I know that they picked Stuart Dybeck once, which was good, but you know, Stuart Dybeck is another one who a writer who does not hesitate in making sure that everyone knows his appreciation for Nelson Alder. I love Stuart Dybeck. I'm going to say my appreciation for him too. A great st- uh, short story writer. Yeah, I feel uh, Chicago City on the Make sh- should be required reading in the public schools of the city. Uh, it's it's it, just the uh, the names have changed. So like I made you do tell us who Bill Big Bill was and Jane Adams was, but the essential relationships that he's getting at and the essential themes he's getting at and the uh, the unfairness of it all, uh, Mary are still very much alive in the city of Chicago. So I do believe uh, I I think it's probably um, a tribute to Nelson Ogren that they don't teach uh, the books in the Chicago public schools because it just shows you how real and potent it is. Uh, why, why why don't we end it by saying uh, talking about how Nelson Ogren ended his relationship with Chicago? He didn't finish out his life here. Talk about what happened at the end of his life. Sure. Well, there's a, there's some controversy about this because, you know, he was kind of a big talker and he says, oh, you know, I, I'm not getting, you know, I'm, I'm being ignored and all this stuff. And, you know, the Chicago's a, he, he said that Chicago was like a, a, a woman who, you know, you know, after 25 years, she didn't look so good. You know? <laughs> and so he was going to leave her. Um, but I think that part of the reason he left is because he really liked writing about the place he was in. And he had found a new subject for a book. He wanted to write about the boxer Hurricane Carter. And that story took place in Patterson, New Jersey and around there. And so he wanted to live in Patterson, New Jersey so that he could do this research. And I think that he was looking for, he had gotten kind of stale. He was starting to reuse some ideas over and over again, and he was feeling stale. And I think he wanted, a, as um, um, Art Shea, the, another artist, uh, a photographer and another friend of Algren's uh, told me that he, he thought that uh, Nelson wanted another shake of the dice. He was a gambler and he wanted to give it, give things another try. And so I think a big reason why he left is he just wanted to be able to do this research in the place where it happened. All right. I'll go with that one. Although I sort of like the attitude that he said, out of hell with you, Chicago and left, but, uh, uh, well, he was a complicated guy. It could be all of those things. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's more than one thing. And he had some negative memories here. His, 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 his longtime housekeeper had died, and that was kind of a mother figure for him. He didn't have any family left here. So there was there were a lot of things that weren't keeping him here anymore. And where is he buried? He is buried out in Sag Harbor, New York, um, on Long Island. Um, I went out there and visited him because he ended up, after finishing with uh, Patterson, New Jersey, he ended up out, out in, um, in on Long Island. Um, because some friends kind of took care of him out there. And it actually, his, his life ended in kind of a nice way, because in the last year of his life, he was talking with other artists. He, he was friends with Kurt Vonnegut. He was being respected. He was uh, 
Um, they were going to make him into the in, into the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and he was going to have a big party in this house out, out in Long Island. And he told, and a British interviewer came to talk to him, and he uh, about about his life and about his work. And Algren invited him to the party the next day. He said, come on, I already bought the liquor. <laughs> and, yeah. and ironically, that's probably the last thing Algren said to anybody because that early the next morning, he had a massive heart attack and he died. Oh. And so, but at the end of his life, he had redemption. At the end of his life, he had friends and he had a place where he belongs and he had some recognition. And so I you know, as as a Catholic, I guess I, I kind of find that nice that he went up and he went down. And then at the end, he got some redemption and he got some recognition. And uh, if you go out to that cemetery, it's I talked about Melville before. It's kind of neat because uh, surrounding Algren's grave are a bunch of graves for people who died in whaling accidents. Mm. And so he's surrounded by kind of a literary tradition around him that and uh, and people uh, put stones on top of the grave if you go out there and visit. So there are fans that come out and visit it. Well, I did. Uh, Nelson Algren is not completely forgotten by any means in his uh, hometown of Chicago. Every year at his birthday, there's a party, a celebration. And, uh, obviously, there will not be one this year because right. of yeah. the coronavirus uh, pandemic. But uh, that's where I met Mary. I think it was last year. God, a year has gone by. Or maybe it was two years. I can't remember, yeah. Mary. Yeah. Uh, you were speaking at uh, the, the birthday party celebration. And so uh, I urge everybody, uh, you've, got, you've got a lot of free time. Uh, you want to know more about Nelson Algren? Either go order uh, Mary's book, Algren: A Life. I could say go to the library, but I think the libraries are closed. Maybe a couple of branches are open, Mary. But um, you definitely can, order it. You can order it. <laughs> Call Mary up; she'll yeah. send you some copies. Call me up. Direct message me on Twitter at Mary with Chicago. I'll set you up. I can get you an autograph. You know. I oh. got uh, I got some books handy. You should should be still a few kicking around in the attic. Um, also, I would recommend it to read Chicago City on the Make if you haven't. I second both of those recommendations. You got a lot of free time, so get Algren a Life by Mary Wisniewski. Get uh, all, Nelson Algren's Chicago City on the Make, and get Boss by Mike Royko. Great book, Boss, right. and you'll uh, be well read and smart, just like Mary. Uh, when it's all said and done, and something good will come out of this pandemic. Mary, thank you so much. That's One great. more time, give folks that information if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to order a copy of the book or, or anything else. What was that uh, that address you read out just a little while ago? Yeah, sure. They, they can reach me on Twitter, at, and my name is at MaryWizChicago. You can also reach me at the Chicago Tribune, which is mwiznetsky at chicagotribune.com. One of the longest names in the paper, so I should be, you know, you should be able to find me. I'm always writing about transportation. Uh, uh, Jarofsky and Wisniewski on the same show. Mary, thank you so much. I'm Ben Jarofsky, and that's another bonus show. Take care, everybody. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home... Yes, cool. ...or attending one live... You can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com slash internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.